0: Welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Collette Bennett and I'm economic and social analyst for Social Justice Ireland. I hope everyone is keeping well as this second lockdown continues. As our regular listeners know, Social Justice Ireland produces three types of podcasts: our SJI interview series where we interview experts on a range of different and interesting policy themes, our 10-minute lesson series, where we give a brief rundown of a policy area focusing on the key points, and our seminar series, where you get to hear from speakers from our conferences and seminars. Today's episode is from our seminar series. Here, we'll get to listen to Anne Pettifor, who spoke at our 2020 Annual Social Policy Conference. Her paper was on the theme of Ireland and Europe, the urgent need for a social, economic, and ecologically just transformation. We're starting with the international perspective on today's theme of a new social contract, a new social dialogue. Our first speaker is Anne Pettifer. Anne is best known for her prediction of the great financial crisis in the coming
1: first world debt crisis uh, in 2008. She
0: co-authored the Green New Deal uh, in 2017. Verso published The Production of Money, which is on the nature of money debt, and the finance sector. She is also the author of The Case for the Green New Deal. She is
1: an honorary doctorate from the University of Newcastle for her work leading an international movement for the cancellation of $150 billion of debt owed by
0: 35 low-income countries. So Anne Pettifer, Anne, you're very welcome and um, off you go
1: it's so wonderful to be here thank you very much uh, Mick and thank you also Sean for having me I'm it's a great honor and I'm just sad that I'm not with you um, it's always lovely uh, to be able to travel to Dublin and to meet with my Irish friends but today we do our best with with this new system I have a PowerPoint presentation only simply to illuminate some of the points that I want to make. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, uh, start by sharing my screen and hope that the technology works. Yeah, it does, it does. So I want to talk today about the new social contract which also has to be a new ecological contract, if you like. It has to be Uh, uh, a contract which uh, is broader than just society but embraces the ecosystem as well Um, and I want to bring an an international dimension to the discussion. I want to argue that we need to address the international system if we are to look at social justice at home at the domestic level. So I want to begin with, oops, and now it's not working. Um, Ah, it is. I want to begin with this extraordinary speech by Olaf Scholz, delivered in September this year, and obviously in reaction to the pandemic, in which he called for a more sovereign Europe, an ambitious, cohesive and transformative recovery program, and argued we must recover together and use this opportunity to transform our economy. These are radical terms used, sovereign, ambitious, cohesive, and transformative. And we need to understand these terms in the uh, international context. Whoops, no, nothing is happening. Uh, what is why? Ah, uh, maybe Colette can help. I'm stuck. Ah, sorry, here we go. So. Um, Uh, He talked also about strengthening the question of uh, sovereignty, holding our own. And I think by using the term holding our own, he means our own values uh, versus the United States and China and um, uh, who are forcefully asserting their national interests. So this was an unusual and important speech from uh, the vice chancellor of Germany. And the Federal Minister of Finance and the question is how are we going to do that and it's ambitious and it's wonderful and it's obviously triggered by the pandemic but how do we do how do we go about this um oh dear I'm stuck with my something is not working but anyway let me try again um help (laughs) Ah, yeah. So I want to argue that if Europe is to recover, we need to transform the global order, the international financial architecture in which the Irish economy, for example, is nested. It does not exist. Uh, in in its own terms. It's nested inside a bigger architecture, one that's been deliberately designed. It's not there by accident. It's been deliberately designed. It's a, a, a global order and we live within it. And if we are to transform the European economy, the Irish economy, if we are to achieve social justice, we have to begin... By looking at this financial architecture and transforming that is my con is what I'm arguing today. <clears throat> and of course, it's known by us all as globalization. And I feel also there's a great deal of confusion about it because the term is ambiguous. It 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 has uh, it has much about it that we like. We like the fact that we can go on the internet and purchase goods from Amazon and have them delivered the next day. We like the fact we can use our credit cards wherever. We like the fact that we can travel to interesting countries, or we could before the pandemic. And all of these are aspects of globalization that are very popular. But really, globalization is not about those interests and and that convenience. It's more profound, in my view. It's it's a system like the gold standard of of the 19th century and the 1920s. It's a system that is liberalized, and I use that word carefully, and that demands and extracts extraordinary capital gains from the fictitious commodities that are, on the one hand, money, which is a social construct, it's not a commodity, land, and I'm using land here in the very broader sense of the word, um, that is finite. These are Earth's resources that are finite, and labor, which of course is human. These are, this, this is a concept uh, first cited by Karl Polanyi. To make capital gains from these valuable assets is the aim of the globalized system. And let me explain that a little bit more. Unlike commodities, money, land and labor cannot be produced, right? Money isn't a commodity that you can dig up out of the ground. People used to think gold was money, but it isn't. Money has been and always has been, and certainly before 1694 when the Bank of England was created, it was simply a promise to pay. It's a social construct. It's something which says, I promise to pay you for the goods or the services that you've provided. And here is a coin or a credit card or a debit card, or some other uh, indication of my promise. Um, If you pick up a £10 note, it says the promise to pay is on there. So these things which which signify the promise, the social construct, the social arrangement, have taken on a life of their own, and people have thought that the thing that signifies is money, and it's not. When I walk into a coffee shop, when I'm able to walk into a coffee shop and I wave a card at a machine, uh, I'm not handing my card to the owner of the coffee shop. I'm taking the card and putting it back in my pocket, And the card simply says, the bank verifies that Anne Pettifor can afford to pay for this coffee. That's what it is. It's simply a signifier of my social contract with the shopkeeper. Land similarly can't be produced. We can't create new earth. We can't create a new uh, planet that is there and it's finite and its resources are finite. And labor, of course, can't be produced. Um, of course, Silicon Valley would contest that and say that they can produce robots which would take, undertake the work normally taken undertaken by human labor, but that's a delusion and and we need to be clear about that. Um, it, it's, it's the kind of utopia that Silicon Valley, the, those large globalized platforms in Silicon Valley, it's the kind of utopia that they are promoting, but that is actually um, a, a dystopia. So land or the ecosystem, and this is the really crucial point as we face the environmental crisis uh, the 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 breakdown of Earth's systems, um, not just climate breakdown but also uh, extinction, the threat of extinction. The land or the ecosystem is constrained by the laws of physics and is subject to the concept of entropy. In other words, The Earth's assets are biophysical stock of resources are finite. And as James Clear has argued, in the long run, nothing escapes this physical law, the second law of thermodynamics. The pull of entropy is relentless. Everything decays. Disorder always increases. Um, When we burn wood, uh, it does not disappear. It decays. It disintegrates but it becomes something else and so that is why we, we, we you know that that is a physical thing that is the the laws of physics um, that constrain land but money or credit is quite different thing it doesn't have those sorts of constraints it's bound only by the mathematical laws of rent seeking money creation so the creation of money is a process which is almost effortless. It involves a licensed bank or a central bank agreeing to provide credit to the borrower on terms and conditions, i.e. with collateral, with a promise to pay, with a contract, and at a rate of interest. Right, And um, we've empowered banks and central banks to provide this liquidity, this money, this credit, Uh, over 400 years because it's it's helped us undertake transactions right but it it is bound only at the moment especially under globalization by the mathematical laws of um of money creation of credit it becomes debt and is compounded at a rate of interest that can grow exponentially unlike land in the broadest sense of the word so we live in a world where today uh, the amount of debt, the amount of credit we've created, which has become debt and which has also in many ways become unpayable debt and which has expanded well beyond our capacity to generate the income to repay that that credit is because we've allowed the, the mathematical laws of credit to cause the amount of debt to to expand exponentially, relative to the fixed inc- the fixed uh, assets, if you like, that we have uh, in 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 the land and for labour. So this conflict between the finite resources of the earth and the almost infinite capacity of debt to compound itself is. The clash that exists between the financial system and the ecosystem and the social system, so at social and political systems, and that is why it has been so vital throughout our history of creating and inventing and using money to regulate and manage money creation. Because if we do don't do that, it can expand, as we know, almost effortlessly and well beyond the ability of repayment. And this becomes very clear when we look at what the banks are doing vis-a-vis the ecosystem right now. We know that in the three years after the Paris Club agreement, JP Morgan Chase, which is the biggest bank in the world, lent $196 billion to the fossil fuel sector, to oil, gas, and coal companies. And if you compare that to Exxon, which is itself a fossil fuel company, It only invested $3 billion a year over three years, $9 billion in extracting oil. And we can see from that, therefore, that the banks play a much bigger role through lending in extracting fossil fuels and and supporting the extraction of fossil fuels than do even the fossil fuel companies themselves. We don't know what is the rent on those loans or the interest, That's unknown. But what we do know is that in order for those fossil fuel companies to repay, they have to go on extracting oil, coal, and so on. Uh, Otherwise, and gas, because otherwise, they will not be able to meet their obligation to JP Morgan Chase. And for me, this is at the very core of the crisis that we face. The uh, conflict between our financial and economic system and the finite nature of our ecosystem. So if uh, agribusiness has to repay loans to the banks and in real terms, relative to the capacity of the earth to renew itself, those rates of interest are high. The agribusiness has to exploit the land and we get what we see here, the growth, the expansion of soil erosion and erosion of the degradation of the land, wherever we look. We have to fish the seas to earn the, uh, to, to ex- extract and exploit the seas in order to earn the income needed to repay debts. And equally, we have to burn, uh, burn down our forests to earn, in the case of Brazil, Brazil desperately needs to earn uh, US dollars, in order to maintain her place in the global economy. So we find that this um, financial system drives the imperative uh, for extraction of the earth's finite assets and of course the extraction of labor, the assets that labor provides too. That's where we see, um, you know, uh, long working hours, insecure pay, insecure conditions, very low pay, falling incomes, labor's share of the economy falling uh, as even as uh, workers work longer hours and so on in order to meet obligations. So money is the oxygen on which the fire of global warming burns, as Bill McKibben argued correctly. Until we deal with that oxygen really trying to put out the fires is just simply tinkering at the edges. So the international system is is is, is this the international financial system enables banks to create credit almost in an unregulated way. Um, of course there are regulations, but largely the system has been designed to make to liberalise, literally, to remove regulations on the the financial system, the banking system, uh, to encase, if you like, and insulate markets, especially financial markets, from democratic decision-making, from democratic regulation. So the financial system operates, if you like, out there in the stratosphere, whereas you and I have to operate here on land and... um, and pay our taxes and be regulated and stop at the, at the uh, lights when we're in our cars and so on. So we live within a regulated system. But the in- international system has been designed to encase markets and protect them, insulate them from de- democratic regulation and uh, decision making. And Quince Labodium has written the book about the way in which these ideas evolved in the 1920s. And we see this most clearly in the case of Ireland <clears throat> and of Europe. <clears throat> so Apple has not paid uh, taxes, according to the EU Commission, uh, the kind of taxes, the obligations that she has to the Irish state um, through, uh, for, for whatever reason, and I don't want to go into why that is the case. I simply want to deal with the fact that Apple is a globalized company <clears throat> operating in the stratosphere that I've been talking about and operating in a way that is beyond the reach of regulatory democracy. So when the European Commission uh, sued Apple for, for the non-payment of 13 billion uh, euros of debt, um, you know there was a sense that this was fair it was about time that these great big huge platforms uh, honoured their obligations. But as we know also, the court, the the general court, the European court, argued that Apple was entirely within its rights to seek to move something, apparently all the platforms have moved over time, something like 300 billion dollars a year into Ireland, in order to avoid paying taxes, and the courts ruled that the European Commission was wrong. That the law stated, effectively, putting this very crudely, that Apple was free, free to move her profits wherever she liked, to erode the base, the basis of a taxation system, and to uh, shift profits wherever it was most a uh, profit profitable for the company. That, in a sense, is the law. And the European Commission was wrong to challenge the law. And as we know, that leads to social injustice. Uh, it made, I'm pretty sure, a lot of the Irish people very angry, because $13 billion of tax revenues would be a very good thing, both for Ireland but also for Europe. So this avoidance of taxation is something that it made possible by the international financial architecture which prioritizes, prioritizes capital mobility over all other kinds of mobility. It's a system that subsidizes and protects encased capital markets from losses and in this sense it's almost anti-capitalist because capitalism is supposedly about risk-taking and risk-taking uh, which include uh, which forces a capitalist to make losses when he he makes bad risks or to make capital or gains when the risks uh, come true and come well, come out good for him now this is a this is the venue of the world health organization, and as you can see i've chosen an, an image of shows it's empty, and what this represents for us is the failure of our world leaders to gathered together internationally to coordinate and cooperate to challenge the global pandemic. Because the pandemic is global. It It doesn't respect borders. But our world leaders failed dramatically to join in that kind of international coordination and left the multilateral organization, which is WHO, out in the cold, largely. We saw world leaders like Bolsonaro and Trump Clown around uh, and refuse to convene an international summit to coordinate uh, the response to a global pandemic and that was a, that's proved disastrous. It's led to the deaths of um, many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people, and if, and, to the morbid, and to morbidity rates for very much higher numbers. But it, by contrast central bank technocrats, the officials, the civil servants, the run-out central banks, convened internationally to bail out the international financial system, capital markets. And they expended huge resources, uncountable resources, on bailing out um, the financial system. So there was the possibility of international coordination to bail out the banks and the impossibility of international coordination to bail out the people, if you like, and to protect them from this global pandemic. And that tells us how this international system is so structured to defend the interests of the financial system while exposing to risk the the people of the planet, but also the planet itself. And we, we understand this. We've understood this for a long time. Uh, Alan Greenspan, who was the governor of the Federal Reserve, famously once said that thanks to globalization, policy decisions in the United States have been largely replaced by global market forces. National security aside, it hardly makes any difference who will be the next president. The world is governed. By market forces, by the invisible hand of market forces, by the financial sector, which decides on interest rates, on the mobility of capital, whether or not capital will enter or leave a country. It decides on the value of the exchange rate. It makes all these enormously important decisions which affect the domestic economy. The world is governed not by democratic governments, not by international institutions, but by market forces. And this is the consequence. We see more and more um, books appear. Uh, The kleptomania on the left here is by Tom Burgess, who's a Financial Times journalist, explaining how corrupt is this unregulated, this lawless international financial system. Uh, Oliver Bullock's book is particularly good on money land, and so is Nicholas Shackson's. So more and more exposure, and then we've seen these enormous criminal activities such as the, 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 the vast fraud, which was the wired fraud uh, across, um, across Europe, uh, run by um, human traffickers, uh, drug dealers, and so on. This is what happens when we have an international system which is detached from democratic oversight and um, regulation. And this is also what happens when we don't manage the international financial system. When we allow that system to determine domestic outcomes, we have a, a, the rise of unemployment. And um, that has been the case in Europe. Since before the financial crisis in 2007-8, but Europe has had an unemployment consistently since then, and we try to hide it away. It's youth unemployment largely, but it's tragic and and it's much of a much greater scale than we are used to through history, and it's it's continuing to rise. Of course, thanks to the virus. This is an image of Nissan workers who. Are likely to have uh, lose their jobs when their factory closes soon. Um, and at the same time as this uh, in this rise in unemployment, we see this rise in the extraction of the Earth's assets, which is accelerating the 6 mass extinction, an event uh, that could see the, the disintegration of civilization. Scientists warn. We try not to hear these scientists. We try not to let it sink in. But the fact is, this is what we're facing if we continue to extract Earth's finite assets for the purpose of making capital gains for the 1%, if you like. And this is also why the soil is disappearing under our feet, right? We are degrading the land in order to extract enough income, enough revenue to repay debts, to maintain this international financial system. The fact of the matter is this is nothing new. We've been here before and we were here in, in and this is most stark in 1933, uh, which fe- where the United States found that it faced this massive ecological crisis of uh, across the great plains of the United States Soil erosion had led to this thing called the Dust Bowl. And it was accompanied also by financial crisis, the huge financial crisis of 1929, and the huge rise in unemployment, which led to the Great Depression, which then caused social and political upheaval and led to a devastating, catastrophic world war. So we've been here before. But what's interesting about the United States in 1933 is this man. President Roosevelt came to power, was elected president uh, in 1932, and he took office in early 1933. And on the night of his inauguration, he decided that in order to address the crisis of unemployment, of social injustice, and of ecological decline and degradation, we had to change the financial system, the international financial system. That time, it was called the gold standard. And it was exactly the system we have today, but probably not on the same scale as we have today. I.e., this was a liberalized financial system with effectively with Wall Street in the driving seat of the economy. So uh, on the night of his inauguration, he demanded that Wall Street hand over all its gold uh, the myth that actually gold was money, hand over all its gold and that from now on the, the a democratically elected government was going to be in charge of all the major levers of the economy. And in particular, in his case, the exchange rate, the value of the dollar, the ability to raise finance, the, the cost, the price of finance and the priorities of the state were going to be determined not by Wall Street, but by a democratically elected government. And his, 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 his advisers said to him, hang on a minute, and this is a story that is not well told and that is not well understood, but a great historian, Eric Rauchway, has been working on this and has revealed how urgent um, Roosevelt thought this task was. His staff said to him, look, you can't close, you can't go to the banks tomorrow and get them to hand over their gold because it's a Sunday. He'd been inaugurated on a Saturday and, you know, it's a holy day. He said, fine, we'll wait till Monday. So on Monday, they closed the banks and that's conceived often as bailing out the banks. In fact, what he was doing was saying, I'm closing the banks. I want you to hold over your hand over your gold and I want you to do it as quickly as possible. And there are terms and conditions to the extent to which the state is going to support you in future. And that began the process of dismantling the global financial architecture that had led to the catastrophes of the 1930s. In the words of his treasury secretary, uh, Henry Morgenthau, we moved the financial capital from the city of London and Wall Street right to my desk at the treasury. And that enabled him, that enabled um, Roosevelt to take control and to begin the process of investing in job creation, of increasing the incomes of American farmers and of tackling the dust bowl. And he did that by employing huge numbers of people to plant trees. We believe they planted about 4 billion trees to begin to restore the, the soil, the health of the soil in the United States. But he also began to restore the economic health and social justice in uh, the United States in that year. And that is why the model of the New Deal is so important to the Green New Deal. It's not just because of what was done relative to the Dust Bowl, it was also because of what was done in transforming the international financial system. So if we want, Mr. Scholz, a more sovereign Europe, one with more control over its economies, if we want an ambitious cohesive and transformative recovery we must begin by transforming the international financial system in other words as the financial times has argued this is a time for capitalism to face a reset thank you very much
0: we hope you found this episode interesting as always if you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you might like to see in our podcast series please do contact us on secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.